Welcome to Transplants. I'm Richard Goodman. Today I'll be talking with Daniel Morales, who now lives in Japan. I first met Daniel in New Orleans, where he grew up. I met him at the University of New Orleans. Uh, he was getting an MFA in writing there, and he was part of a non-fiction workshop I led. Daniel and I created a Kickstarter campaign together. I wanted to create a program where the MFA students could write and record pieces and have them broadcast on the local NPR station. We needed money to do that, and our Kickstarter campaign made that happen. Daniel went to undergraduate school at Harvard. He studied Japanese language and literature there. After UNO, he moved to Chicago, where he worked for the Japanese consulate. He's fluent in Japanese. Subsequently, he was part of an elite Stanford University graduate program in Japan. He was then hired by a Japanese company in Osaka, where he now lives. He's many interests, including making beer. He's working on a book about learning Japanese. He has written for Japanese publications through the years, as well as translated works from Japanese into English. Daniel, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here, Richard. Um, I'd like to begin, uh, well, first of all, the idea of transplants is that you move from one place, either voluntarily or involuntarily, involuntarily meaning when you were a kid, but in your case, voluntarily, and you move from one place to a very different place, and in your case, Chicago to Osaka. So I'd like to start um, by asking you about what are the chief impressions you have about living in Japan uh, versus living in Chicago, the city you left to move to Japan? Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, it's so funny. The One of the first things that I noticed was how different the supermarkets are uh, here, everything is very much oriented towards individual shoppers. Uh, the portions are much smaller. There's a lot of prepared food that's very reasonably priced. Uh, you can buy, for example, like a quarter of a cabbage. You can buy uh, a quarter pound of, of ground uh, pork, and it's already portioned out for you. You don't have to go to the butcher and ask for that much. Whereas in Chicago, I feel like it was, it was very much... Uh, family size. If you need five pounds of chicken wings or, you know, a pound of sausages, uh, that's very easy to get. And so in that sense, it's been, it's, I've, been, I've really been struck by how affordable everything is here. I mean, Japan does have this image as being a very expensive place, but it's actually a very reasonable uh, price right now. So that was one of the things I noticed right off the bat this time moving here. I don't think that's something I fully appreciated when I did my first stint in Japan after college, uh, because I had never shopped for myself in the U.S., you know, I had been living in a, uh, in a dorm, uh, eating out of a dorm for four or five years. I didn't even really know how to cook when I first moved there, and so trying to learn how to do that in Japan was a struggle, and it's not something I really did on my own. I think until and something I didn't figure out until I go, went to Chicago actually, and so that was part of that process in Chicago was almost becoming an adult in America. And then uh, I think that first stint I did in Japan was almost pre-adult in a way because I wasn't f forced to negotiate with a lot of things that adults would have normally had to in the U.S. because I shipped off to Japan immediately after college. Uh, and it was a different, very different experience. I knew how to get around Japan very easily and do everything there. But 
coming back to the U.S. was a bit, was a bit of a struggle. And then it was nice to have some space to to do that and develop in Chicago, I think. Yeah. So have you learned to be a pretty decent cook in Japan with these uh, individual portions and all that? Yeah, I think so. I think much more so than the first time I was here. I think the first time I was here, the ingredients were very strange. They didn't have everything I... I, I knew how to use. All, I could really only make an omelet. That was the only thing I knew how to cook. And uh, now I've learned to to use Japanese recipe uh, books to follow Japanese uh, content creators online who are making recipes with local ingredients. And also, I mean, it's been, you know, basically 20 years since I first started coming to Japan. And in that time, it's also become much easier to access uh, foreign ingredients here. And so, for example, here in Osaka, there is a, uh, a, a store I can go and get uh, Indian food ingredients, so lentils and uh, rice and spices that aren't available in a Japanese supermarket. I can get them in bulk. And it's funny, I in Chicago, I got used to cooking with a pressure cooker, an instant pot, and it's good for cooking things like lentils and things like that. And I found a cheap one online here in, in Osaka shortly after I got here because I think they haven't really caught on the same way. I don't think you can use them for Japanese food in quite the same way, but it that's been super helpful. So being able to find something that felt a little bit like home for me was, was really good. And then also learning some local dishes and things like that. It, it's been a bit of a compromise, I think. Uh, let's back up a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why don't we? Uh, why don't you just tell everyone how long have you been? You're in Osaka right yep. now, right? Yep. And how long yep. have you been there, living there? I got here last August, so August of 2022. So I've been here for not quite a full year, almost a full year, and yeah. Okay. And did you did you know much about Osaka before you moved there? I'd visited once or twice, to be honest. I did not know too much about it, but I was very familiar with Japan. I knew the reputation that Osaka had as a very kind of warm, uh, blue-collar city, much like Chicago. Uh, they're actually sister cities, uh, funny enough. And But that was about the extent of my knowledge. Um, so tell me a little bit about Osaka. Is it an ancient city like Kyoto, or is it more modern? Um, it's old in that it has an old history, it doesn't have that connection to the imperial family that Kyoto has. Kyoto was the, and probably still is, the spiritual capital of Japan, I would say, just in how much of the history is contained there. Osaka was a merchant city and is just down the river toward the the bay here uh, on the Pacific coast of Japan. And so there's a lot of rivers. There's some industrial areas out uh, near the port um, but it's very well connected on the train lines. It, the bullet train uh, stops here uh, right after Kyoto and then right before Kobe. Kobe is only, you know, 40 minutes. Kyoto is only 40 minutes from here. So it's right in the middle of everything. Um, it's a a kind of a rusty city, I would say, in the same way that Chicago might, you might consider Chicago. Um and but it's great. It, it's it's a little bit spread out in a way that Kyoto isn't. There's several different um, 
kind of hubs that I think drive life in Osaka. How far is it from Tokyo? Is it north of Tokyo? It's like west of Tokyo, about two and a half hours on the bullet train. And what's the population more or less? Oh, shoot. I don't know that offhand, but... Oh, shoot. I'll have to look that up. Uh, 2.7 million. Yeah. So compared to, to-, to the-, the Tokyo greater area, great- greater metropolitan area is about 36 million. Uh, I would say this area is significantly smaller than that, uh, but it's, it's still an extended urban area that stretches from, you know, the suburbs to the southwest, uh, up to the north near Kyoto, and then to the to the the west uh, of Kobe. Yeah. But you wouldn't, or would you say that it's a tourist def, uh, destination for foreigners? I mean, I, Kyoto and Tokyo, of course, but do people come to Osaka? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely not that same. It's probably the third stop, you know, if if not fourth or fifth, because a lot of people are going to be interested in going to other shrines or places like Hiroshima uh, and um, maybe even other places such as Fukuoka, which is in southern Japan, uh, might might get a little more tourists. But but yeah, people do come visit. They're starting to come back now. Uh, in the last six months, we've seen a lot, uh, a major increase in, in tourists after the pandemic. Okay. Can you tell me uh, a bit about where you're living? What sort of place is it, an apartment and how big and all that stuff? Sure. Yeah. So I'm I'm living in what they would call uh, one LDK, which is one uh, bedroom, one living room, a dining and a kitchen. And that's how they would, it's, it would be the equivalent of a one bedroom apartment in the U.S., a very small one bedroom apartment. I think it's probably about 20 square meters. Um, and it's, I'm living about 30 minutes door to door from where I work. I work in a, a business area that's um, just south of Osaka Station, I would say. And so I live on a, at a, a kind of interesting little crossroads of sorts. It's called Awaji Station. And from here, I can go st- directly to Kyoto. I can go directly to Osaka Station. And then I can go directly to the southern part of Osaka City uh, on two or three different train lines. So it's, it's really convenient. There's a lot of people that commute through here. And so depending on the time of day, the station can get quite crowded. And it's it's uh, the station's a little bit too small. So you, you're really kind of packed. The trains themselves aren't that crowded. But getting into and out of the station depending on what time of day you go, you can be really crammed on the staircases and um, in and out of the station. But once you get out, it's it's a very nice little area. There are these covered shopping arcades that are smaller than the major ones in the city, but still have some older uh, shops on, on them, older shops selling miso paste or uh, just pastries and even older grocery stores um, and people cooking up Okonomiyaki, um, kind of, that's one of the local specialties here. It's a kind of pancake that um, it gets a, a nice like sauce and mayonnaise on top of it. That uh, So people come here for that, I would say. But they're cooking that up on the shopping arcade and you can kind of order it out open air. So it's a nice little area, a residential area. Uh, becomes residential pretty quickly. And 
I got really lucky. My realtor just recommended it and I ended up living here. So I feel very fortunate. Good. So um, you work for a Japanese company um, and you are, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, are you translating from Japanese into English? Are you translating from English into Japanese or both or something different here? Yeah, so I translate from Japanese into English. Uh, also, also, we do a lot of kind of coordination, and that requires communicating in Japanese with our Japanese counterparts. Uh, they're the ones that are taking our product and, and then uh, incorporating it into the work we do so that we have uh, work in every language, uh, including Japanese. And so, um, yeah, we've got a full team of translators, editors, project managers, that interface with uh, with our Japanese coworkers. Yeah. So you are really, really intensely in the Japanese society by working for a Japanese company and communicating in Japanese. I mean, that's 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 intense. Uh, how's how's that going? Um, it's been, I think, for the most part, good. I think you know, if it was my first time doing it, it would have been a lot more intimidating. But I knew what to expect. I kind of knew everything how it was going to happen. And that familiarity made it much easier for me, to be honest. Um, I knew how to find an apartment in Japan. I knew what I needed to do once I got here to register with the local government. Um, and that's just something that I built up over time, you know, and, um, and having done it, I think now that I've, I studied abroad for a year during college, that was one long stay before that I had only ever, traveled as a tourist. And then after, immediately after college, I lived here for five years. And so both of those stays, I think, are what really prepped me for the tr smooth transition back into to life here. And then also coming over on business trips uh, while working in Chicago that, you know, kind of kept me a little bit fresh. But yeah, you know, just, and then also, you know, I think one thing that that's interesting in Japan is that you have this, there's a sense that it's a very kind of, well, it is a very moderate culture. It's a very respectful culture. Um, the idea, I guess, is that, I mean, the stereotypical idea is that you don't rock the boat here or you try not to. But what I think sometimes people who aren't Japanese interpret that to mean is that you can't, ask for anything you can't make any requests you can't um even communicate sometimes in a way that in order to help yourself but this time i just knew that that's not the case that's not true that you're not putting anyone out by sending an email and asking them oh hey by the way what specific paperwork do i need i'm not seeing the right thing i'm getting this response from this office is there anything you can do to help me or do you have any recommendations for things like this and even if they just tell you no, there's nothing, there's no harm done in that. And so I think that in that sense, just being like confident of myself interacting in the culture and confident with my language, it just, it just has made it all very, very easy. But if, if you hadn't done that before, it, it feels a lot more intimidating for sure. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It just struck me. You had, you worked for two Japanese companies in Chicago, right? Well, one was the consulate and the other was a real estate yep. place. Have you ever worked for an American company? 
Um, well, technically, the the trade association that I worked for in Chicago was it was a, a trade association for property managers. It was a U.S. nonprofit, and so that was basically the my U.S. work experience. You know, working at the consulate was a kind of blend between the two because on the consulate side of things, it was very Japanese. Uh, and then we were interfacing with local diplomats in Chicago and in the Midwest. And so in order to work with them, though, we had to kind of go with the U.S. customs often, um, U.S. protocols. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to get at is uh, the differences between being um, an employee for a Japanese company in Japan and an American company. I mean, do they treat you any differently at all? In, at your job in Japan because you're an American or are you just like, you're like everybody else, you have to perform at a certain level, etc.? Um, I would say for the most part, it's, it's, you get treated the same. Uh, there's a lot of uh, foreigners working in my department. And so in that sense, um, a lot of the managers are, are foreigners. And so the expectations in that sense might be a little bit different than working for a Japanese manager. But for the most part, everyone, it's, I think it really is about compromise. You know, to be honest, I find that everyone is kind of, we're all meeting each other part way in the kind of understanding of, of what is, what is expected of us. Mm -hmm. So, how often are you speaking English every day? I know that's probably not an exact science to this, but uh, would you say that most every day you're speaking Japanese 80% of the time and English 20 or do you have any idea about that? To be honest, because we're going into English, I would say I, I unfortunately largely speak English during the workday. Um, I'm reading a lot in Japanese, both the content that I'm translating and company emails and company information is, is mostly all in Japanese. And uh, if you're able to communicate fluently and quickly, then you're really an asset because you start to earn the trust of your Japanese coworkers and they understand uh, they can go to you with, with questions or, or needs and things like that. Yeah, you know, it's funny, when I was living in this village in the south of France, small village, I lived there for a year, and um, no one spoke English, so I had to learn French, and mm. I found after a year that I just missed English. I, I mean, you know, as a yeah. writer, I missed speaking it and uh, thinking in it, but I think your level is a lot, lot different than mine. You're much more profoundly... Uh, literate and fluent in Japanese. So I'm wondering, is that an issue with you at all? Are you going back between the two languages easily without, um, you know, missing any aspect of English? Oh, I, you definitely miss English. You start to thirst for it. You know, it's funny, that reminds me of the second time I came to Japan, I was writing for a travel guide and I had, was nearing the end of my itinerary. And I had arrived at this hot springs town called Beppu in southern Japan. And I knew nothing about it. And I wasn't really even fully comfortable with hot springs at that point. And I, I did become comfortable because of that city. I just had to go to these hot springs every day. And 
but I was walking around the city and then this bookstore had one of those little turnstiles with paperbacks kind of sitting on it. And you could turn it and they had and see all the paperbacks. And they had a copy of Paul Auster's The New York Trilogy. And I bought it and I just sat in my hotel room and I read it like nonstop for like 24 hours. And it was it was I was just so thirsty for English language. And so I know that exact feeling. And when you're using a foreign language, I I do think you're constantly in a position of weakness, even if it's even if you're fluent, like functionally fluent in a way that you don't really have any issues communicating what you need to say. It's kind of a mental tax that you don't have using your native language. And I think that affects you. And if you're not kind of aware of it, you it can affect you negatively too much. But I think just even being aware of it, being like, okay, I'm going to be in a position of weakness because I'm going to be using this uh, non-native language. Um, having Being comfortable with that discomfort, I think, is critical. I used to, at the end of the day, be completely exhausted by thinking and trying to speak in French, just exhausted. And um, it, the mental effort of it, I don't know if that's what you're speaking about or you're speaking about something else. Yes, that same feeling. Yeah. And then we, and then also like just the idea of failing, being comfortable with failing is, I think, a really critical part of, of, uh, Living in a foreign you language. can't be afraid to make mistakes. And I know people who are, they won't even attempt to speak a language that they've studied in school and, uh, you know, for years because they're just afraid of making a mistake. They feel ashamed. About, I mean, but you can't be that way uh, or yeah. you'll, you'll never get anywhere, you know. Yeah, yeah. I had a really interesting conversation with, uh, I'm taking French one-on-one here with um, a teacher uh, and... I would make the make mistakes, of course. And she said, you know, look, a, a fluent French speaker will understand what you're trying to say, even if you're screwing it up. Because they basically, you know, if you use the past tense instead of, the, or something like that or whatever, a word that's not exact, they will understand your mistake. Uh, so it's not as if you're being completely incomprehensible. Uh, so that, that was a big help. Uh, in, in not worrying so much about, you know, being flawless. Um, but I want to, um, so what do they say when you walk into a store or a restaurant or one of these ramen noodle places, whatever, and you come in and you speak, and you certainly don't look Japanese, and you speak fluent Japanese, what's their reaction? Uh, is it different or is it just like calmly, okay, well, you want uh, you want a side of fries with that or whatever? It, it varies, you know. Um, it really varies. Like, actually, today at the grocery store, I still wear my mask indoors. It, we're, we've gotten to the point where, I mean, a lot of people still wear masks in Japan, but it's not quite as much as it was back in April. There was a point in May where it COVID got reclassified, and at that point, masks became more optional than they kind of previously were. They were never required, but say they became more optional. And so today I was wearing my mask in the grocery store, and I, I even had my headphones in. I was looking at the ice cream, and this woman comes up to me, and she said, hey, can you hand me two of those beers on the top shelf? And she didn't even bat an eye. To, she didn't even, I mean, maybe she didn't realize that I wasn't Japanese, because I had the mask on, 
but so th- that's a very standard reaction to she she might have realized that I was not Japanese um that's very standard but at the same time I, w- I went out to dinner the other day and they asked if I needed the English menu and I said oh, the Japanese menu is fine and the woman next to me goes oh my god you speak Japanese and you get that reaction too I would say that's something you probably saw more you know back in the 80s and 90s I think when there were starting to be a lot more business people coming over to Japan in numbers that they hadn't seen previously. Um, And you even saw it in the countryside up until more recently. I remember when I moved out to the countryside to teach English, I went, there was one convenience store in the town where I lived. That was how small it was. And I went to the convenience store, like before I started work and I was just kind of browsing. And there was a student there who didn't realize who didn't see me go into the store and she kind of turned around and noticed me and she had this like visceral shock. She's like, Oh my God. Like she was very surprised. And so that I think was, wasn't really like because he's, he's a foreigner, but maybe just because, Oh, this is the new teacher that we've heard about, you know? Um, so yeah, it's a varied reaction, but for the most part, it's, it's very normal. Now there's a lot of people who are speaking Japanese and, it's because of the decreasing population, you know, there's more and more uh, workers who are um, foreigners who are working in convenience stores, uh, at restaurants. And sometimes we all speak in Japanese because that's our common language. You know, I mean, that I mean, that 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 happens for a long time because there's there were there's lots of Chinese and Koreans who live in Japan and they don't stand out quite as much, but that that was true f- for them for a long, long time. And now you, you see lots of the Indian community has gotten a lot bigger in the last uh, 15 years. Um, and so you see, see a lot of Indians and, and their Japanese is always very good. And, and so um, it's 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 an interesting situation. But yeah, for the most part, it's very normal. Yeah. And there's also you see more and more uh, c- celebrities uh, speaking Japanese on TV these days too. So you, you, celebrities, you mean foreign celebrities? Yeah, there's a couple of famous foreign celebrities, and then also just foreigners who speak Japanese on TV. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to ask one or two more questions, and then uh, because sure. um, you've been very generous with your with your time, um, do you think you could live in Japan permanently? That's a really good question. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's possible. I mean, you do need to kind of, I think it's important to get back to your home country every now and then because it's, it's just a, it's a relief to go back. It's important to see family and and maintain connections with friends. That's really what would be the hard part. The actual day-to-day of living in Japan for me these days is, is quite easy and, and very pleasant. And so I think in that sense, it would be something I could do long term. Yeah. I don't want to get all mystical on you here, but when I went to, when I went to Paris for the first time, I felt this and I've I've heard other people say this more or less um, say this, that um, I sort of felt like I belonged there, that um, maybe I, I don't want to get into previous life craziness, but um, that I part of me was a citizen there by just by spirit or by by something and um, I felt completely at, 
at home there, even at that point I didn't speak the language, this is before I went to the south of France, do you feel anything like that kind of attachment that's almost preordained about Japan or, or not? Yeah, I think in a way, um, I think for me, it coming to Japan, I didn't feel like I belonged here immediately, but I did feel that first summer I came here was just so like eye-opening for me in so many different ways and forced me out of a comfort zone that I didn't even realize that I had been inhabiting for so long and my diet was forced to change you know the way i bathed was forced to change you know my entire experience with transportation was changed and in that sense it really opened up my eyes to living in a different way and so that that was initially like an appreciation and that that shock of something new and novel i think is always really attractive, right? When you go somewhere that you haven't been before, it can be almost addicting. And I, you know, it's funny, going back to New Orleans, I saw it happen to people that were transplants to New Orleans in a way that I maybe didn't realize when I was in high school because everyone I interacted with in high school was from New Orleans. But in in grad school, I was, you know, studying with people who were coming from other places and watching them react to the city was... I felt like I was watching myself react to Japan in a way, which was so interesting. Yeah. And I think a lot of people also say that New Orleans, they feel New Orleans makes sense to them in a way that their previous uh, place they lived didn't. You know, a lot of people, I think, say that. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you finally take that step to go to a completely different culture, whether it's from one city in America to another, um, or a foreign city, you feel this liberation that um, it's such a good thing. I mean, of course, there's difficulties, you know, especially if you yeah. don't know the language, but you feel like there's this restriction that's been lifted from you, you know, um, and you grow, you feel this sense of growth. It's, it's very, it's exhilarating, you know? Yeah. It's not, it, it doesn't last forever. And I think that's why you you kind of go through these you'll plateau and then there's a honeymoon period right and then you plateau and then it'll you'll drop down and you'll you'll have a you know bad period that where you struggle a little bit but then the same is true if you're if you're back home in the US and i think when you realize that it'll plateau into a much like more positive area i think and for me i think that's where japan has gotten to it's gotten to a point where you you love it for all the things that are great and despite all the things that are challenges. So, Daniel, your podcast is called what? Uh, yes, I have a website and podcast called How To Japanese. Uh, so you can find me at howtojapanese.com and you'll find the podcast on any podcast carrier. I've got, I just finished the third season. I had two seasons interviewing people about how they learn Japanese and how what kind of work they do. And the third season, I did a look at uh, the writer Haruki Murakami, uh, kind of leading up to his new novel that was published this past April. And uh, so, yeah, I did a, a look at his career and uh, kind of a review of his latest novel. 
Well, I'm sure we could go on and on. I mean, but um, Daniel, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to, to talk to me about this. It's, it's fascinating, and um, I really appreciate it. Um, My pleasure. Yeah, no, always great to talk about travel and, and uh, living abroad and, and in New Orleans and Chicago. So anytime. Anytime.